Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. In this episode, author Kevin Barry reads from his novel, The City of Bohan, and takes questions from the audience. Recorded in the Central Library on the 20th of May 2011, as part of its Dublin Revealed series. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this, the third event in Four Fiction Fridays, which is a a series of weekly uh, lunchtime readings. Four Fiction Fridays is organised by Ireland Literature Exchange, or ILE as we are also known, in cooperation with Dublin City Public Libraries, and it's also part of the 2011 Bialtana Festival. And we'd like to thank the public libraries very much for uh, providing the venue for these readings and all of the support that they've given us throughout. My name is Aoife Walsh, and I'm the Information Officer with Ireland Literature Exchange, I'll just give you a bit of background about ILE before anything else. We are the National Agency for the Promotion of Irish Literature Abroad, and we do this primarily through our translation grant programme, which enables foreign publishers to translate and publish Irish works of literature in their own languages, in their own territories. So be it French, Italian, Brazilian, Portuguese, Chinese, Russian, you name it. We're funded by the Arts Council and by Culture Ireland, and... We're extremely grateful for that support from our funders. The translation grant programme has resulted in about 1,500 works of Irish literature in translation. And that archive of books is housed in our offices, but it's also available through your public library, um, through what's known as the Rosetta Collection or the Rosetta List. So if there's anything you are interested in, if your first language is not English, you can go to your, just go to the counter and ask them about the Rosetta Collection. We also host uh, literary translators in Ireland for a period of up to three weeks while they're working on the translations of Irish works. And in fact, next week we're going to have three translators in the country at the same time from Russia, uh, Turkey and China. So we promote many, many writers um, from all all different shapes and sizes, um, living and deceased. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you one of the living writers... Uh, Kevin Barry Half alive (laughs) Kevin was born in Limerick and he's lived in lots of different places over the years but he now lives in Sligo He's the author of one collection of short stories called Their Little Kingdoms which is the small one here Um, Their Little Kingdoms won the Rooney Prize for Literature in 2007 His debut novel City of Bohan was published in April by Jonathan Cape. I should also say Their Little Kingdoms was published by Stinging Fly Press in 2007. Um, so City of Bohan. Um, the Guardian Scarlett Thomas has said that City of Bohan marks Kevin out as a writer of great promise. Uh, Keith Ridgway, writing in the Irish Times, praised Kevin's writing, saying it draws you fully into the thick atmosphere and ticklish menace of easily the best realised character in the book, The City of Bohan itself. And Irvin Welsh, no less, has described Kevin as the most arresting and original writer to emerge from these islands in years. So now without further ado, or any kind of messing, I'll hand over to Kevin, who will read from his debut novel, City of Bohan. Thank you very much, Sifa. Thanks. Okay, so I'm going to do what we're going to do is um, I know it's called Fiction Friday, but I'm going to read a little bit of fiction and I'm going to close by reading a little bit of non fiction, just something about, about myself and, and how I wound up living 
in a Garda station in County Sligo, just to finish off. And I think in the middle we'll, we'll talk a bit, and Aoife is going to ask me some, some questions. We both come from Limerick, so it could get a bit parochial <laughs> and colloquial at some point there. Um, first of all, I'm going to read a little bit from City of Bohan. And a wonderful English publishers, Jonathan Cape, keep calling it Bohane, the wonderful city of Bohane. So I've been correcting them for the last year about the pronunciation, about getting it right, the, the Han bit. Um, Bohan is a small and very malevolent and murderous little city somewhere on the western seaboard of Ireland and I refuse to be drawn on exactly where it is. And this is the story of how things are out in Bohan in the middle of the 21st century. And, and though it's in the future, you, you, you'll notice as I read that this isn't a, a future as a progression, it's kind of a, a regression. And, and in lots of ways, Bohan feels to me like a kind of a Western. It's kind of like a West of Ireland Western, if you like. So I'm going to read a little from chapter one and a little from chapter two, just, just to give a feel for it. And I, I tend to get a bit carried away when I start reading this. So there's a danger that this could get slightly theatrical at some point. (laughs) So from chapter one of the novel City of Bohan, which I'm going to read in a Bohan accent. This chapter is titled The Nature of the Disturbance. Whatever is wrong with us is coming in off that river. No argument. The taint of badness on the city's air is a taint off that river. This is the Bohan River we're talking about. A blackwater surge, malevolent. It roars in off the big nothing waste, and the city was spawned by it and was named for it. City of Bohan. He walked the docks and breathed in the sweet badness of the river. It was past midnight on the Bohan front. There was an evenness to his footfall, a slow, calm rhythm of leather on stone, and the dockside lamps burned in the nighttime a green haze, the light of a sad dream. The water's roar for Hartnett was as the rushing of his own blood, and as he passed the merchant yards, the guard dogs strung out a sequence of howls all along the Bohan front. See the dogs, their hackles heaped, their yellow eyes livid. We could tell he was coming by the howling of the dogs. Polis watched him, but from a distance. A pair of horse Polis watered their piebalds at a trough across in Smoketown. Polis were fresh from the sight of a reefing. It happened him over, said one albino motherfucker. Set your clock by him, said the other. Albino, some called him. Others knew him as the long fella. He ran the hartnet fancy. And he cut off from the dockside, and he walked on into the back trace, the infamous Bohan trace, a most evil labyrinth, an unknowable web of streets. And he had that back trace look to him. He was a dapper buck in an Addy boy Crombie. The Crombie draped all casual like over the shoulders of a pale grey Italian suit. Moher. Mouth of teeth on him like a vandalised graveyard. 
but we all have our crosses. And it was a pair of hand-stitched Portuguese boots that slapped his footfall, and the stress that fell the emphasis was money. Hard got the riches. Oh, the stories that we told out in Bohan about Logan Hartnett. Dank little squares of the trace opened out suddenly, like gasps, and Logan passed through. All sorts of queer hawks lingered in the Bohan trace in the small hours of the night. They looked down as he passed by. They examined their toes and their sacks of tawny wine. You wouldn't make eye contact with the Longfella if you could help it. Strange. But we had a fear of him and a pride in him both. He had a fine hold of himself, as we say, out in Bohan. He was graceful and erect, and he looked neither left nor right, but straight out ahead always, with the shoulders thrown back like a general, and he walked the Arab tangle of alleyways and wines that make up the Bohan trace. And there was the slap, the lift, the slap, the lift of Portuguese leather on the back street stones. Yes, and Logan was in his element as he made progress through the labyrinth. He feared not the shadows. He knew the fibres of the place. He knew every last twist and lilt of it. Jenny Ching waited beneath the matry in the 98er square. He approached the girl, and his step was enough. She needn't look up to make the wreck. He smiled for her all the same. It was a wry and long-suffering smile, as though to say, More of it, Jenny. And he sat on the bench beside. He laid a hand on hers, hers that was tiny, delicate, murderous. The bench had dead seasons of lovers' names scratched into it. Well, girlin, he said. Dude up in Reefton, Smoketown, she said he was a Cusack off the north side. Did he have it coming, Jenny? Don't they always, she said. The Cusacks. Logan shaped his lips thinly in agreement. The Cusack family has always been crooked, girl, he said. Jenny Ching was 17 that year, but wise beyond it. Careful she was, and a saucy little ticket in her low riders and wedge heels, her street tear pineappled in a high bun. She took the butt of a stogie from the tip pocket of her white vinyl zip-up and lit it. I got enough of me plate now across the footbridge, Mr Hartnett, she said. I know that, Jenny. The Cusacks, she said. The Cusacks is going to sulk up a wealth of vengeance by and by. And if you're asking me, like, a rake of them tossers bullying down off the north side is the last thing Bohan needs. It is fond tradition in the city of Bohan that families from the north side rises will butt heads against families from the back trace. Logan ran the trace. He was back trace blood and bone and his was the most ferocious power in the city that year. But the Cusacks were building strength on the rises. What's the swerve we're going to throw, Logan? Oh, there was a canniness to Jenny. It was bred into her. The Chings were old, Smoketown stock in Bohan. Smoketown was whores and herb and fetish parlours and grog pits and needle alleys and dream salons and Chinese restaurants. Smoketown was the other side of the footbridge from the back trace, yonder across the Bohan River. And it was the Hartnett fancy had the runnings of Smoketown also, but the Cusacks were shaping for it. I'd say we keep things moving quite swiftly against them, Jenny, he said. 
because they're going to come on down anyways like oh there's no doubt to it girl he said they're going to come down barking we may as well force them to a quick move she considered the tactic a fortis full prep for a gack of fussy being playing their pride like what the fancies helping you gonna take an eye for an IQs or any bit of spunk at all like Logan smiled you're an exceptional child Jenny Chen he said he rose from the bench smiling not a lick of warmth had entered the girl's hand as long as his had lain on it you want more Cusacks hurted so she said he looked back at her but briefly the look was his word are you sure about that Logan another winter of blood and bohan like a smile and it was as grey as he could will it ah sure it'll make the long old nights fly past he said Logan Hartnett was minded to keep the chin girl close in a small city so homicidal you needed to watch out on all sides he moved on through the gloom of the back trace the streets of all tenements are tight, steep-sided, ill-lit, and the high bluffs of the city give the trace a closed-in feel. Our city is built along a run of these bluffs, that bank and canyon, the Bohan River. The streets tumble down to the river. It is a black and swift-moving rush at the base of almost every street, as black as the bog waters that feed it. And a couple of miles downstream, the river rounds the last of the bluffs, and there enters the murmurous ocean. The ocean is not directly seen from the city, but at all times there is the ozone rumour of its proximity, a rasp on the air like a hoarseness. It is all of it as bleak as only the west of Ireland can be. Now in proper western fashion, Logan faces a great difficulty at this time in Bohan because his old nemesis arrives back into town, his old rival in both gangland and in love. And this gentleman is called the Gant Broderick. Gant is actually a West Limerick um, word, a traveller, from Traveller Cant, and it means a kind of a leader. And the Gant's return is chapter two. So in just, as, as the Gant arrives back into Bohan, we get in the, on the early morning train, we get more of a look around the city too. So I'm just going to give a couple of pages from, from chapter two. That hot, defiant screech was the Bohan L train as it took the last turn onto De Valera Street. The L ran the snake bend of the street, its boxcar windows a blurring yellow on the downtown charge. The main drag was deserted, this windless AM, and it was quiet also in the car the Gant was sat in. There was just a pair of weeping whores across the aisle, nary girls by the feline cut of the cheekbones, and a drunk in greasy authority overalls down the way. The L train was customarily sad in this last stretch before dawn. That much had not changed. The screech of it was as a soul's screech. If you were lying there in the bed, lonesome, and succumbed to poetical thoughts, that screech would go through you. It happens that we are often just so in Bohan. No better men for the poetical thoughts. De Gant took a slick of sweat from his brow with the back of a big hand. He had a pair of hands on him the size of Belfast sinks. The sweat, he found, was after coming out on him sudden. 
it was hot on the L train, and the flush of heat brought to him a charge of feeling also. The gant was in a fever spell this season. The tang of stolen youth seeped up in his throat with the rasping burn of a nausea, and on the L train, in yellow light, the gant trembled. But the familiar streets rushed past as the L train charged, and the pain of memory without warning gave way to joy, a kind of joy. He was back, and the gant beamed in ecstatically as he sucked at the clammy morning air, and he listened to the fours. I fucking love that blad on fucker big time, said one. He was filth girls to bone through to it, console the other. He was casting off all over the town. You check me, he took you for a gummy lacking. He was back among the city's voices, and it was the rhythm of them that slowed the rush of his thoughts. He'd been glad to hop on the L train up on the north side and take the weight off his old bones. The gant was back at last in the Bohan creation. Down along the boxcar, he saw the authority man mouth of sadness through his sozzled half-sleep, most likely a woman's name. Was she as green and lazy-eyed as the gant's lost love? and the city unpeeled, image by image, as the L-train screeched along the Valera Street, a shuttered store, a war hero's plinth, an advert for a gout cure, a gull so ghostly on a lamppost. Morning was rising against the dim of the street lights, and the lights cut just as the L screeched into its dockside terminus. The train locked onto its spurt. The rubber jolt of the stoppers meant you were downtown, meant you were in Bohan proper, and the L's diesel tank settled and died. He let the whores and the drunk off ahead of him. The gant as he disembarked was fleshy and hot-faced, but there was no little grace to his big man's stride. There was a nice roll to his movement, you sketching? This gant had old-time style. The station is named... Bohan St. Francis Saviour, officially. But everyone here knows it as the Yellow Hall. The Gant sniffed at the evil, undying air of the place as he walked through. Even at a little after six in the morning, the concourse was rudely alive and the throb of its noise was by the moment thickening. Amputee walnut sellers croaked their prices from tragic blankets on the scarred tile floors, their stumps so artfully displayed. The Bohan accent sounded everywhere. It was flat and harsh along the consonants. Sing-song and soupy on the vowels. Betimes vaguely Caribbean. An old man bothered a melodeon as he stood on an upturned orange crate and he sang a lament for a youth's distant love. The crate was stamped Tangier, a route that was open yet, and the old dude had belters of lungs on him was the gant's opinion, though he teetered clearly on eternity's maw. Choked back another tear did the gant. He was big but soft. He was hard yet gentle. The early edition of the Bohan Vindicator was in, the city's only paper. But the bundles had as yet to be unwrapped by the kiosk man, who listened with his eyes closed to an eerie sonata played on a transistor wireless. At this hour, on the Bohan Free Radio, the selector tended towards the classical end of things and towards melancholy. Nodded his head softly, the kiosk man, as the violins caught. Oh, we'd get medals for soulfulness out the tip end of the Bohan Peninsula. The whores who had wept on the train were ahead of him now on the concourse. They had gathered themselves. They were painting on bravery from their compacts as they walked. They would be bound, he knew, for Smoketown, 
and its early morning trade. The camp watched as they went out through the yellow hall. Ah, look, the quick switching of their buttocks beneath the thin silk fabric of their rara skirts, and the way their calves were so finely torn from half their young lives spent on six-inch spike heels. The sight of the girls made him sentimental. He had run stables a horse himself as a young man. There was a day when it was the gant of the runnings of Smoketown, a day when the gant of the runnings of the city entirely was set out in Bohan. The gant ran it clean. He looked out to the first of an October morning. The gulls were going lula on the dockside stones. Those gulls, of course, were never right. That's often said in Bohan. The sheer derangement in their eyes and the untranslatable evil of their cawing as they dive-bomb the streets, the gulls of Bohan are one ignorant pack of fuckers. He'd missed them terribly. He laughed out loud as the gusts of morning wind flung the birds about the sky, but he drew no looks. Sure, the yellow hall would be crawling with wallbangers at the best of times. The gant set out towards the Smoketown footbridge. He took a scrap of paper from his pocket and opened it. He read a hand that had not changed with the years, still those big, nervous, childish letters, and its scrawl spelt out these words, Hopi Ching, OK Coffee Shop. The Gant had a wee girl to meet at this place. It was a good time for such a meeting. He could be lost among the crowd. Smoketown, he knew, would be black at this hour of the morning. The late shifts from the slaughterhouses and the breweries were only now clocking off. Bohan, Bill's sausages, and Bohan, Bill's beer. We exist in the high fifties of latitude after all. The winters are fierce, and we need the inner fire that comes from a meat diet and voluminous drinking. The plants worked all angles of the clock, and after the night shift it was the custom to make for rest down and a brief revel. In the dawn haze the brewery lads were dreamy-eyed from a hops fume, while the slaughterhouse boys had been all the silver and shade of night up to their oxters and the corpses of beasts filling the wagons for the butcher's slabs at the arcade market in the Bohan Trace, and the wagons rolled out now across the greasy cobbles, and it was a gory cargo they hauled. See the peeled heads of sheep and the vain fleshy horns of pigs, the glistening trays of livers and spleen, skirts and kidneys, lungs and tongues. Carnivorous to a fault, we'd ate the whole lot for you out in Bohan. The gant hunched his big shoulders against the morning chill. The lowing of condemned beasts sounded in bass tones on the air. Our stockyards are laid out along the wharf. The gant stepped over a gutter that ran torrentially with fresh blood. Now how, he wondered, was a man expected to think civilised thoughts in a city the likes of Bohan? Thanks very much. Uh, Thank you, Kevin. (laughs) I'd maybe just say a few words about the book before we we have some sort of questions or whatever. Um, Sometimes we have such... um, a rich inheritance in Irish literature that sometimes you can look at the map of Ireland and think, oh God, it's all been done. You know, you can think Roddy Doyle did that bit and Edna O'Brien did that bit and John McGarren did that bit. And you can think, there's nothing left, you know. So I, I, I got a marker and I physically drew an extra peninsula onto the western seaboard of Ireland. And I said, this is mine. 
and I'm going to call it the Bohan Peninsula. And I knew, I knew, I knew for a long time I wanted to build this little city at, at the far tip of the peninsula. And, and the only way to, do, to build a city on the page is to build it with voices, to build it with the city's voices. So, so I, I, while Bohan is an imaginary place, it has direct links or, or, or connections with, with actual Irish cities. So I, I grew up in Limerick City and I spent the guts of 10 years in, in Cork and I misspent a lot of my youth in Galway. So all these voices have kind of stewed inside it in my head. And, and actually when I started to hear these voices, and when I could hear the way people sounded in Bohan, I put it down and it was a very exciting discovery to make because I thought, actually, these types of voices have almost never been used in Irish literature. Working class English, Limerick speech, working class Cork speech has almost never appeared in Irish literature. There's almost none of it. There are exceptions that prove the rule. You could think about people like Enda Walsh in drama, who's mm-hmm. used Cork City voices beautifully in his plays, um, writer like Michael Curtin in Limerick. But there's very, very little. There's more in Dublin, more so. And it's simply because these weren't communities that produce books. So actually, when you look at the map after a while, you find actually there's lots that hasn't been done here yet. And you just have to listen to, to the voices to get it. And I always think fundamentally... There, there are two kinds of writers. There are writers whose inspiration comes in terms of a visual image. And then there's writers whose inspiration comes from the ear. And, and I'm definitely of this type. I, I, my stories come from the way that people speak. And, and my, my ear is my tool. And, and my main tactic or mode of approach really is to eavesdrop and to listen. And, and the way the English language is, smoke, is spoken in Ireland and particularly the way it's spoken in places like Limerick and Cork mm. gives us a strange and weird and wonderful resource as, as writers because it's, it's twisted out of all sorts of, of shape and there's lots of weird undertoes on it and, and, and strange, strange influences on it that come from Irish and, and it gives us something that, 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 that no other country has in lots of ways and, um, and that's the way, the way I work and that's the way Bohan came, came to life and... Um, it's possibly a little unusual, and I would say that the influences on the book aren't primarily literary, um, even though I would be influenced by things like Anthony Burgess and, and A Clockwork Orange, which was a favourite book of mine when I was growing up. But uh, influences on this are things like DVD box sets that I've been watching, like The Sopranos and The Wire mm-hmm. and, and Deadwood, and, and also mm-hmm. music and, and film. So, so, so influences come, come in all ways, and I think your questions are going to cross over. Yeah, so well, the, one of my first questions, I mean, you've said that um, the name of the city, Bohan, yeah. came to you in a dream. Well, I don't want to sound melodramatic, <laughs> but I had a vision. <laughs> I, play, I actually, I, 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 I was all set to write this, but I, I still didn't know what the city was called, and I woke in a fever sweat one night. <laughs> in Countess Ligo and I sat bolt upright in the bed and I said out loud Bohan <laughs> and of course herself kicked me and said I'll go to sleep would you stop your nonsense you know but I, but I managed to make the note on, on the piece of paper at the side of the bed and as soon as I knew what it was called I could start and Bohan is actually an old Cork surname I, I, I knew a couple of people called Bohan but it just sounded right to me mm-hmm. for, for the name of the city it's, it's kind of that like Athlone or something you know it has that kind of mean old kind of feeling and you could just mm. picture this dark little city called Bohan I think so um, that long A that's it yeah, that, yeah. Ah, yeah. <laughs> kind of so, um, and did, did you write it quickly was it I mean did it yeah, flow I, 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 I did a mad quick draft I, I, 
I remember something once that the great, the great um, American writer William Maxwell said that if you're if your inclination is usually to write short stories, that with a novel, the best way to do it is, he was, t- he was talking to John Cheever, actually, the great story writer, he said, go in quick, get a draft down quick and see what, see what you have. Mm. So, so I said, I'm going to write a thousand words for every day for 10 weeks and see what I have. Okay. And I had about 60 or 70,000 words, so I had a very rough draft. So I had the city and I had the main characters after that. And yeah. I didn't spend about six months putting the story in there. And I realized at that point that I was thinking, Jesus, I'm writing a Western. <laughs> Essentially, all, all the characters in Bohan kind of conform to real Western types. Logan is, is your classic sort of paranoid anti-hero. The Gant is the old-timer with unfinished business. You have Immaculata, Logan's mm-hmm. wife, who's this mysterious woman cop between them. And then you have all the young guns coming up on the sly, on, mm-hmm. the, on the blind side. And, um, Just short of 18 as well. They're yeah, not quite adults. Yeah, and uh, so it was... Um, so it was great fun. Yeah. I, I had a ball with it, you know. I, I, and it, actually, it, it str- that's something that took me a while to realize is that you should be having great fun when you write. You should mm-hmm. be enjoying yourself. I think when you start off and in your twenties, there's an awful lot of kind of torture genius stuff that goes on, and you're, you know, pacing and wringing your your your, your hands and and pulling your hair out. But it eventually, it came to me that if I'm not having fun in the writing room, maybe the reader isn't having so much fun mm-hmm. when they open my book. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get people to read books nowadays. Mm. And I am very determined, if I have any ambition as a writer, it's to give the reader a good time when they open my book and to keep them entertained while they're on the page. Yeah. And was that writing process very different from uh, the, the short stories? Well, uh, sto- sto- stories are quicker. Um, <laughs> I, I always think with a good story that you'd probably be in and out in a week, okay. um, the good ones. Um, I, I, I've... I know I, I have stories that I've spent much much longer on and, and done lots and lots of drafts but um, I think so, I th- yeah, they're very different novels and I, I think stories in some ways are more difficult um, a, stor- a short story can go wrong in you very very easily at, a, at any given time I always think it's like a walk on a tightrope mm-hmm. and that each sentence is like a step along the wire and you can misplace your, your footing at, at any moment and you break your neck and you lose the story and you'll never get it back mm-hmm. um, you can get away with more in a novel a novel by its nature is looser um, but I, I mean if I have an idea for some time I, I'm lucky in that I have a fluent imagination so I get ideas all the time but if I have a, an idea my, usually my instinct my first instinct is to see if I can make this work as a short story that's my first okay. ambition for it usually mm-hmm. um, my interest in the novel as a form is kind of different. My interest in the novel is as a sheer, purely as, a, as an arena for innovation and for experimentation mm-hmm. because I think it needs it. I think the novel is struggling as mm-hmm. a form. I, it's an awful thing to say, but I sometimes go into the bookshops and I look at the, especially I look at the literary fiction shelves dutifully and I find myself edging over towards the crime mm-hmm. and towards the graphic novels and God help us, even towards the poetry. <laughs> but um, there are poets in the room. I shouldn't say that. I'll be getting into trouble later on. But um, I, I think the novel needs to... It's a, the literary novel, it seems to me, can exist in a kind of a cultural vacuum mm. where it's only influenced by other things that happen in the literary novel. Mm. And it's, it's, it's cut off from things like... Uh, I was just doing a, a radio thing last week in England about... Um, the influence of, of American television drama mm-hmm. on the novel mm-hmm. and should there be more of it and I, I honestly think there should because I, for me the best long form fiction at the moment is in things like Mad Men 
and The Sopranos. And I, I know that when writers gather now, we're not generally talking about the latest hot novel. We're talking about what happened in the last yeah, series of Mad Men. A golden age of oh, it is. It TV is a, absolutely, and, and I think it's it's and those shows actually they steal a great deal in terms of how they're structured and put together from the novel. Um, David Simon, who created The Wire, says every series of The Wire is like an old nineteenth-century Russian novel, the way it's structured. Mm. And it, so it's time, I think, for novelists to start stealing things back yeah. and try to get yeah. some of that vitality yeah. in as well. Because we've well, definitely made a a story on that okay. <laughs> um, and you've said that Bohan is kind of like a wild uh, west yeah. and so is there um, we'll talk about dialogue maybe in a mm. moment but is there a dialogue between the urban and the rural yeah. in your work do you consider that well yeah I mean I live in South County Sligo now um, looking out the window at fields and hills and a lake and, and it's a very rural and then a couple of days a week I'll probably be in Dublin or Galway or in a city or somewhere so so that's a very that that's a very much a pragmatic influence on the book mm. just coming mm-hmm. between the two all the time mm-hmm. um, and I, I think it's a very interesting thing in Ireland as well that most people who live in Irish cities are in fact boggers not too far back you know um, most people are, are originally either their parents are from the countryside or their grandparents mm-hmm. are my my on my mother's side they they came into the city in in the thirties I think they were previously witches on the side of a West Limerick mountain um, <laughs> so 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 we we have the smell of the fields off us yet mm-hmm. my father's crowd were all townies going way back um, in in the lanes of Limerick my brother once tried to trace our family tree and got to about the eighteen sixties and gave up because he said there's nothing good. There's really nothing good back there, you know? but um, I, I think it's uh, yeah. I, I'm really interested in, in Irish speech, and I'm fascinated by accents, by Irish accents, the way we express things. Limerick City's accent always strikes me as bananas because <laughs> Limerick City is a small city. It's about two miles wide, and you come in from Patrick's Well, and they're poor boggers out there to talk like that. And you go out the other side, two miles out the road to Clearside, and they're even worse boggers out in Clear. <laughs> But for the two miles in between, they sound completely different. It's very flat and it's very quick and it goes like that, blah, 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 100 miles an hour. And I thought, how does that happen? It's, it's, it's very strange. And, it's, um, and I think if you can get the accent, if you can get the way that people speak, you get everything about them. You, mm. get, you, you get the humour, you, you, get, you, you get their soul through their speech. Mm. So always I, I, I'm trying to... Um, I'm, I'm trying to get get how people talk so it's been a natural thing the last couple of years I've been doing some little plays as well and that's that's something I'll definitely yeah. continue doing so too. You, do you do what what Ender Walsh did for disco pigs and sit in sit in cafes and kind of listen to oh, people oh I, I rob loads yeah, yeah. I, I take loads of stuff because you can't make it up yeah. as well as as, as as the crazy things that people say and and I act it out when I'm writing at home in the room I do all the voices and um, I, I kind of approach it like an actor with a part really yeah. Um, because your ear will always get the false notes much quicker than your eye will get them mm. on the page. So, 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 so I play with it and, and, and give it a go. Yeah. So my last question um, for the day that's in it, do you, translators, do you spare a thought for them? Well, when they have to tackle people like Jenny Ching and yeah, Ice Cusack? A, a, very, a very brave French publisher has just bought the rights and they're going to translate this into French so God only knows <laughs> what it's going to sound like. Um, I, I, like. I think it's impossible to do a direct translation 
but fortunately the same publisher publishes Irvine Welsh and they're sending mm. it to all his translators because they're saying if they can translate Edinburgh they might be able to translate Limerick and Cork you know yeah. but I, I think they'll need to do like a version of I'd love a, a French translator who's also a novelist who would say what's Marseille going to be like in the middle of the century mm. and to do a kind of a version rather than a direct translation I don't think a direct translation is possible I think it would be awful you know mm-hmm. um, I'm about to start getting um, questions from the translator which would be very interesting because mm-hmm. I've made half of it up as well you know I, I mean a lot of it comes from real Cork and Limerick speech but there's lots that's just made up off the top of my head mm-hmm. as well where I was just mm-hmm. inventing yeah. something to look forward to then okay. um, does anybody have any questions before Kevin's going to read right. again at the end Hi, I, I was interested in what you're saying about the literary novel mm. and TV and everything because um, I find sometimes very literary short stories are quite difficult to read mm. Uh, but obviously everybody has their own taste like this one quite well-known writer and I've read some of his work, I don't understand it mm. um, you know it's just too subtle for me so yeah. but I mean I, I've read lots of people all over the world and I haven't felt them too subtle but anyway mm. that's, um, so what I'm just saying is that kind of an invention of the 20th century this whole idea of the literary I, some, somebody, I think some, some crime writer recently said that literary fiction needs to accept that it's also a genre, you know, uh, this kind of Booker Prize fiction, if you like. And um, I mean, on a pragmatic level, I know from talking to people at, at Random House is that every year literary fiction is selling less and less and less. People are losing interest and they're just not buying it. Random House publishes about 15 different imprints and last year was the worst ever year for its literary fiction titles and this year is down about 20% on that. So it's 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 gone that quickly, and it's it's purely from. I do think that there's a big elephant in the room with, when you talk about books as well at the moment, which is the internet and and technology and technology the way it's changing our brains. Um, I think physiologically, the days of the long read, are kind of passing us by to to some extent. Um, Martin Amos talked about that recently as well. I mean, I always think that when I was. 19 or 20 which is a very important age as, as a younger writer because it's the age when your brain is a kind of a sponge and you're I, I was reading four or five hours a day and I would have been eating novels I would have been going through six and seven novels a week when I was that age and um, I know if I was 19 or 20 now I wouldn't be doing that I'd be online for a lot of that time so that's going to have a huge effect down the line what's not going to disappear is storytelling telling stories is a fundamental human need we need to make stories to give shapes to our lives because our lives are essentially shapeless in reality and and, and make no sense so that's why we need stories and that's why we need to tell stories so we'll always tell stories but i think the modes and the forms will change a lot and i think it's going to be a really really interesting time i think practically as a writer and what i've been doing is i keep going through a lot of forms and kind of hedging my bets if you like so i write short stories and the novel and I've been doing plays and little film scripts and everything just going, going between different forms and, and just keeping your options open because we'll, we'll keep telling stories but it, I think the modes and forms are going to start changing very, very quickly. Mm. Um, in, interestingly, one of a big influence on this and I'm delighted to hear from, from the publishers as well is that um, one of the areas that's really exploding and selling brilliantly and doing really well is the graphic novel. That's, that's, that has taken off massively over mm. the last few years and it's a really interesting form and and I've been I've been working with a Spanish artist who's based down in Kilkenny on, on graphic stories and that's it, it's 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 a really exciting mm-hmm. area to work in as well. 
we're, we're, we're talking about doing a, a graphic novel version it would be a very natural fit I mean I grew up with comics and graphic novels so they're, they're a huge influence on this as well for sure there's going to be um, an audio book as well which I'm going to be doing myself so that's, that's that'll be that'll be fun I hope I, I'd love to see a real a real revival in westerns, um, and I, I don't think it'll ever happen. And even though you had True Grit, which was a big hit last year, mm. apparently there isn't a, there isn't a widespread taste because I think younger people just don't understand the grammar of western movies now. Mm. They don't know the types and stuff because it, it's been so long since it was a commonplace thing. But as a kid, my my, my thing was 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 westerns far more so than sci-fi or, or, or Star Wars. And that I was I was big into westerns, mm -hmm. and there was a kind of a, a late golden period in the seventies with the Sergio Leone stuff and all that. And um, yeah, it was good fun to find myself doing a Limerick western. <laughs> <laughs> hey. um, on the same point about westerns and your drawing from cinematic world yes. and drama, um, and I'm a great fan of westerns as yeah. well. Uh, but they have somebody with a badge, if it's Clint Eastwood or it's John Wayne or it's yeah. Gary Cooper, he comes in and, and, and saves the town, saves the community, which is falling apart. When I'm looking at, um, and I've, I'm a journalist and I've uh, been living here for three years, mm -hmm. I've shared with you, I've also been in City Morning Herald. Ah, yeah. But that's by the way. Um, and I um, read about what Northern Ireland yeah. and um, watch it on the BBC television mm. and news and that sort of thing. I describe it to my friends as, as a Western, a mm. wild Western, but without the guise of the sheriff's badges. Yes, yeah. I assume that the city of Wilhelm doesn't have guys with the sheriff's badges. Who <laughs> Not quite. We we have the polis out there, the Haas polis who 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 are on on horses. It's very interesting actually. In Western, one of the great TV shows of the last years is Deadwood, which is um, an invented kind of um, version of of an actual Wild West town. Mm -hmm. And very interestingly, it, it's done in a kind of Elizabethan English. It's real, it's real invention. But mm -hmm. they have lots of Irish characters in the early in the first season of it, and um, you know, the, it's called Deadwood, and it's That's really, really yeah. It, it was mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. yeah in, in Deadwood in um, in the North Dakotas, but um, there was a huge Irish influences on these places in terms of the music that was going out there and ballads, and Peter Murphy, the novelist, were always going about the murder ballads, Irish murder ballads, been a huge influence on Western storytelling mm -hmm. as as that grew up as mm -hmm. well. So so we did sort of feed a lot into that. So it's, it's nice to bring Western. Um, one more question. Yeah. yeah. Had your parents any memory of Kevin Barry's Patriot? Well, people of a certain age tend to break into song when I tell them my age. Oh, my own child, you know. um, I, I'm actually not named after the Patriot. I was actually named quite a sad story. I had a cousin in, in the UK who was a mod who got killed off his scooter um, the summer before I was born, and he was Kevin Barry. I was actually named after him. I was born about a, a year to the, to the day later. And um, so, so that was who I was named for. But we have gone back generations. We have Kevin Barry's in the family, and I presume originally it was, it was in honour of, of the Patriot, you know. <laughs> but uh, whether or not it's a disadvantage, I don't know. I found myself living in, a, in an old RIC barracks now, so that's kind of a strange place for a Kevin Barry mm -hmm. to wind up, yeah. which, which is a lovely link. Lovely link, um, yeah. So, yeah, just to, just to finish off, and thanks very much for, for showing up. It's been, it's been great fun talking to you. I, 
I'm going to read something that's, that's, that's kind of actual about myself. Um, it was uh, the Observer newspaper in the UK asked me to, to, um, to write an essay on anything that could be described as a life-changing event. So, so I, I wrote a piece about finding the house we live in now in, in County Sligo. So the piece is called simply The Barracks. The house smelt of old sergeants. It was 30 years since it had been used as a police station, but there were still bars on the windows of the rooms out back. The echo of our footsteps across the stone floors broke the long silence that filled the house. As we pushed through the creaking doors, each room was like a pocket of trapped time, as if the silence was just a pause in some hard conversation with a ghost of the local felonry. There was rising damp, peeling paint and homicidal electrics. It does need a little work, the estate agent said. My girlfriend and I exchanged a worried look. We knew at once that this old mess was home. There is a German word, Weltschmerz, that describes a feeling of homesickness for a place you've never been. And I knew that the barracks, as it was still known, might ease such a feeling in me. There was a leaking chimney, a half acre of Japanese knotweed, and a general air of drizzle. We had an offer on the table inside five minutes. An offer, the estate agent said, and all the colour drained from her face. It had been built in the 1840s for the Royal Irish Constabulary in South County Sligo, between the Brickleave Mountains and the Curlews. It had a vantage view over a smoke-grey lake, and it was surrounded by reed fields that murmured in the breeze, and their summer gold was fading. And I worried at once that this was a place to inspire overly limpid prose. But it was time I put down a route. I was 36. This would be the first house I could call my own. Over the previous decade and a half, I had lived at 17 addresses across nine cities of Ireland, Britain, the US and Spain. The psyche fractures from so much itinerant wandering. You're never sure where you are when you wake up in the morning. You turn a street in the city you're living in and you expect a different city, a different street. You find that you're living in the amalgam place of a dream. Also, there was the situation with the books. There were by this time more than 50 large boxes of books. Recent moves had required the hiring of lorries for the books alone. We needed a place to keep the books. <laughs> so we moved in. We painted the walls. We sanded floorboards. We kept the bars on the windows in memoriam of the old sergeants. We got all the chimneys patched up and cleared and we lit fires. I'm a child of suburbia and I was at first freaked out by the sheer quietness at night and by the utter darkness that descended on the lake and the hills. The willows caught eerily in the wind. There were mystery rustlings from the hedgerows. But there was a calm about the barracks itself. An odd comfort seeped from its old bricks. I took the upstairs landing from my workspace and very deliberately I faced the desk away from the view. But every few minutes I would creep up on the window. Just water and cattle 
and wooded hills rising into mist. But a storied past can project a rush of images to a suggestible mind. The barracks was built at a strategic point in the Sligo Hills, protective of the domain estates and the hunting lodges around the lake. It was torched by the IRA in the early 1920s and subsequently rebuilt to house the newly formed Garda Síochána. The guards had it until the 1970s. I understand they used to go no further than the front gate to stage roadblocks and check for tax and insurance. They would have mugs of strong tea to hand against the inclements. The weather in South County Sligo is mostly overcast, but the lake makes the most of what light there is and refracts it, and the light, even on the greyest days, has a peculiar intensity there, a luminescence. Quickly, as we settled, I began to feel an unaccustomed creep of contentment. Happiness, for me, has tended to be retrospective. I'm never happy at the time. I'm generally moaning and grizzling at the time. But as soon as I leave a place, I become instantly nostalgic for it. I start to think about the good old days. And in the barracks, as I finally cooled my heels... I grew almost pathologically wistful for the cities and the flats and the houses I had lived in. If they were full of grey ennui at the time, their colours came true in memory. Even a bleak time in East London can become, with perspective, a kind of idyll. And I can smile now on recalling the close shave I had with a double-decker bus when I left a Jamaican Shabeen in a tower block at seven in the morning and, in something of a reduced condition, I attempted to cross Leytonstone High Road on all fours. <laughs> you would imagine it difficult to be nostalgic for the likes of Leytonstone, but there you go. And I can remember now with great fondness the evil long-stay motel I beached up in on State Street in Santa Barbara, a premises occupied almost exclusively by eerily suntanned alcoholics. A Mexican dwarf lady used to sell drugs from a pickup truck in the parking lot and she'd throw me a jaunty little wink each day as I passed by and I would return it in kind. Very strange, the lovely poignancy the years have given to that odd flirtation. Random sounds and feelings come forth from the back ways of time. I hear the afternoon clicking of the dominoes in Liverpool as the old dudes gambled and smoked heroically in the Chinatown social clubs. I feel the malevolent wind that lifts from the port of Leet to a salty Edinburgh Newtown and it leaves you with a face on like a skinned haggis. I remember the very strange mansion in the woods outside Ithaca in upstate New York where we were allowed to rent the basement after the elderly owner had died. But she seemingly lingered. In the small hours of the night there would be a shuffling upstairs and the lights would come on though nobody lived there anymore. We had a groundhog in the garden. I'd go outside for a fag in the morning, pale-faced after a night of ghosts. And the groundhog and I used to sit and stare at each other. I've since quit smoking, but whenever I imagine those, those luxurious tars and resins, I see a groundhog. These memories are stirred each day as I cycle the Sligo countryside. After a sullen morning at the desk and then the Harold Lloyd slapstick of my attempts at DIY, I get on my bicycle and I pedal through the drizzle and the quiet, 
The effort required for the steep gradients of the hills releases endorphins, and these cause a giddiness. As I ratchet up through the gears, I make up nonsense songs and I sing them aloud. There are farmers in the vicinity who may believe me not to be the full shilling. <laughs> I remember being peeled from the walls of questionable nightclubs in the city of Cork. I remember the slow months I spent in a room the size of a cupboard in Barcelona. I could make toast without getting out of bed. <laughs> I remember being a kid in Limerick, a serial truant, lying low around the back lanes and side streets of the city, and the chill of excitement when you learn the hidden town. But if I cycle a little faster, the past gives way to the moment, and the moment has its own romances. It would take a heart of stone not to imagine a music for the place names I pass by. Temple House Lake, the Plain of Maitura, Ballandoon Abbey, the Caves of Kesh. The names have melody and are themselves a song. Now I make frequent jailbreaks from the barracks still. Bleak February groans to life and I'm history. I bolt for Andalusia. But when I'm away now, I can't help but think about the chair by the stove in the barracks, the squishy red armchair in which I plan to grow old, placid and handsomely fat. <laughs> the barracks has given me a place to allow my memories filter through and to make stories of them. Forgive the neat metaphor, but a writer's work is to police memory and the precinct is the past. A life, however, must be written in the present tense. And when night falls... I can walk out into the darkness now, where the reed fields give on to the lake, and there is nothing to be heard but the breeze and the reeds. I tune in to the reed frequencies, and a nervous moorhen witters a threat that I should keep my distance. I squat on the old jetty and close my eyes, and I listen to the ageless presence of the dark hills beyond. A feeling descends for a moment, and then more, and it's something like peace. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.